welcome. It is uh, so good to not see you, but to know that you're there. And uh, again, we just um, very thankful for the opportunity we have as a, as a church staff to just function in the way that God is allowing us to function right now. It's just really cool. And uh, I really enjoyed the announcement this week. Uh, uh, President Trump said something that we all know is true, and in some ways it didn't need to be said. But what he said was that um, in, in some places they've determined that bars are, um, are essential and abortion clinics are essential, but they have not recognized that the church is essential. And uh, he said it's time to correct that. And I just think from a political perspective, um, I'm very thankful that that was said, and I'm thankful for how that's going to feed into politics. But I would also say this. Um, thank goodness that we don't rise and fall but based on the comments of you know, our politicians. We don't. Uh, we're stable. We know what God has called us to do and who he's called us to be. And, um, and, and it's kind of fun to watch how the world responds to that. But we're not driven by the world. We, we take God's word. We take what he says and then we pray about how he would want us to respond in every situation. So anyway, I am looking forward to this and we'll see how it goes. I just want you to know that um, we value gathering together as a church family. And we are going to start making plans. We've already been working on making plans to meet, but we're also not going to just ru rush off. You know, one of our denominational leaders said something that's really important. And he said, just because you're allowed to meet doesn't mean you should meet. And I would also, I would say, just because you're not allowed to meet doesn't mean you shouldn't meet. And so for us, we're pr really praying about how the Lord would have us work through, work this whole issue through. And at some point, we'll talk about it and we'll kind of share our plans. Um, I was so tempted to take another week and just preach on COVID-19 and how Christians should think about it and see it. But uh, we decided this week to jump back into Matthew and to look at discipleship. You know, one of the things that I just have to say is that I love uh, technology uh, and I love church. I love the fact that we've been not meeting but been able to still continue with church. But I would say this, that online church is not the same thing as church in person. And, uh, and I've just really enjoyed just the shift, the things that have that have had to change the way that we've been challenged. And I think there are some real blessings and unique beneficial things that have happened related to uh, just this whole situation that we're in. But it is actually not the same thing as church in person. There are things that happen when we're here that don't happen when we're not here. Things that are a necessity. And that is all a, a topic for a sermon in the future. But I would just say, you know, discipleship understanding discipleship. And this morning, we are going to be back in the book of Matthew, and we're going to talk about discipleship. And obviously, we're going to learn little pieces of that all through um, the book of Matthew. And in two weeks, or the, in two more sections of Matthew, we're going to actually watch a detailed description of Jesus training his disciples. So this is just a part of discipleship that we're going to be considering this morning. But I will just say this, you know, discipleship and understanding what a disciple is, it actually defines your Christian life to understand what a disciple is, to understand what you're called to do. A correct understanding of discipleship defines what we do in the church. There are a lot of debates about what the church should do. There are a lot of people who show up to church and they have a variety of opinions. 
And uh, sometimes God just gifts the body of Christ differently, and sometimes people have different personalities. And, and I think in some ways, every church is unique because it's uniquely made up of the strengths and gifts and the unique gifts that God has placed in each body. But there are a lot of debates about what the church should and shouldn't do that really have its roots. They have their roots in the fact that people actually don't understand the purpose of the church or what God has called us to do. So discipleship defines how we do church. Discipleship, a correct understanding, defines how we make disciples. And I'll just take another step. This morning, we're not necessarily talking about parenting, but the single thing that actually a parent does for their children is to disciple them. And so that is what every Christian does. That is what a Christian home, the purpose of a Christian home is discipleship. And so if we don't understand this, if we don't do it correctly, there's actually, there's like nothing in life that we can do properly as a believer. And so this is very foundational. It's very important. And it's interesting when you think about discipleship, discipleship involves unbelievers as we encourage them and train them and call them into discipleship. And discipleship actually involves believers. Once a person has actually become a believer, um, then discipleship works its way out there. So evangelism and discipleship, really, it's one process. It's, this, it's different elements of the same process. And as a parent, uh, you, you start discipling unbelievers. And you pray for the day that they become believers and then that you can disciple them in that. And so those are, those are big topics. Now, um, we've, we've just finished up a couple weeks on angels, Satan, and demons, and understanding Satan's plan. And I just want you to know, Satan wants to mess up the discipleship in the church. He wants to interrupt what God has called us to do. Now, here's the great thing about Matthew and the book of Matthew, is that Jesus laid out the path of discipleship. Think about this. Jesus chose his disciples. Jesus taught his disciples. There was an intellectual component to what Jesus did with his disciples, but he also trained them. He spoke, he taught, he trained, he had them practice, they learned from life, and then he sent them out. And here's the great thing. Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples. This process was done for him. And one of the things that Matthew does as he writes his book is he actually presents discipleship to us. One of the reasons that we're studying the book of Matthew is so that we will, um, what Jesus did with Matthew, that we'll have a good, a good view of that, and so that we'll make sure that we're like Matthew in the sense that we're following Jesus and being trained by him, and so that when we practice discipleship, that we will do it the way Jesus did it. So there's four things that we're going to look at. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 9. And um, one of the things that we're going to see in Matthew chapter 9, we're going to see four things. And we're going we're to take Matthew uh, chapter 9 through 17, and then we're going to jump into the end of the chapter, verse 35 to 38. Next week we'll come back and cover that middle section. Um, but one of the things, that, there's four things that we're going to see this morning. One that is that the life of a disciple begins with total commitment to Christ. Uh, the life of a disciple begins with total commitment. We'll see that in verse 9. The life of a disciple 
is introducing others to Jesus. We're going to see that in verse 10 through 13. In verse 14 through 17, we're going to see that the life of a disciple really flows out of the heart. It's not an external behavior thing. It's a heart that reflects itself in proper behavior. And the life of a disciple flows from a spiritual world view. One of the things we talked about last week is that Satan attacks the mind. He attacks the way people think. And so you cannot be a disciple of Christ without a transformed mind. And so we, those, are the, those are the four things we'll be looking at this morning. Um, let's look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. And let's, let's consider that the life of a disciple begins with total commitment. Matthew 9, 9 says this, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. You know, think about that. Jesus walks up to Matthew while he's at work. And he says, Matthew, follow me. And Matthew literally abandons everything and follows Jesus in that moment. Now, here's one of the things that we know, and, and, and just as we consider this whole idea of discipleship, um, that is actually the call that Jesus gives to every Christian. And discipleship, every single Christian is a disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ. And if you're not a disciple of Christ, if you are not a follower of Christ, you're not a Christian. And so this is talking about discipleship, but discipleship is synonymous with being a Christian. Now, here's the deal with Matthew. Uh, Matthew, um, it was not the first time he'd ever seen Jesus when Jesus walked up to him and said, hey, follow me. Matthew wasn't sitting there and a stranger walked by and said, follow me, and he abandoned everything and followed him. Matthew grew up and collected taxes. Matthew was collecting taxes in Capernaum where Jesus lived. And Matthew had been exposed to Jesus' teaching. He had seen him, probably had a lot of conversations about him. And so he's been seeing this Jesus, and he's been growing and learning. And then Jesus walks up and says, Matthew, follow me. And so he was called to follow. And uh, one of the things that I think about with this is that in Matthew's life, there was a foundation laid for the day that Jesus said, follow me. It was things that he saw, things that he heard, things that he was taught, and even beyond that, it was the work of the Holy Spirit in Matthew's heart. That was not purely a human incident. That was a divine appointment where Jesus called Matthew, God worked in his heart, and Matthew followed Jesus. You know, when you think about Matthew, uh, Matthew had sacrificed everything. He's a Jew, and he's become a tax collector, was um, just the lowest form of society for Jews, was hated by his own people, viewed as a, as a betrayer. If you were to try to insult somebody, you would call them a tax gatherer. That's, that, that's who you would compare them to. And Matthew traded everything to be rich, to be a tax collector. But when Jesus called him, he abandoned it all and he followed Christ. 
You know, one of the things that I think about as Jesus is choosing disciples and specifically related to Matthew is um, when Jesus was choosing disciples, he wasn't walking around and saying, who can I get to follow me that will make me look better? Who can I reach out to that, you know, how can I have a team with the really qualified, amazing people on the team? I'm sure that as Jesus went around choosing his disciples, and especially when he chose somebody like Matthew, that the other Pharisees, the other religious leaders, I'm sure they were saying, oh yeah, uh, he's, look, look at him, he's a, he's a rabbi, but look at the kind of people following him. Oh my goodness, he's got tax collectors. He couldn't find anyone better than that. I mean, a tax collector, they'd follow anybody. And so when Jesus is reaching out and and calling disciples, he's not looking for the amazingly talented. He's not looking for that star team. Jesus is reaching out and inviting everybody. And Matthew is one of the people that Jesus has called. You know, it's interesting in Deuteronomy 7, 7, um, God talks to the nation of Israel because sometimes um, I think we can become prideful and we can somehow feel like God's lucky to have us on his team. And when, when, when Jesus, uh, when, when God's talking about the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, he actually says, I didn't pick you because you were more numerous or because you were amazing. I, in fact, picked you because you were the least. And God is in the business of taking people that struggle who realize that they don't have it all together, Jesus comes into their life and he uses them amazingly and powerfully. That is just an awesome thing. Now, this call to discipleship, it's interesting, but it comes in a context because Matthew, before we get to chapter 9, verse 9, Matthew actually describes some conversations that Jesus had about discipleship earlier on. Matthew 8, 18. If you just go backwards a little bit in your Bible, um, it says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Think about that statement of commitment. The scribes hated Jesus. So this man was willing to leave his social circle and follow Jesus. And Jesus says to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the nest have air. Have ne birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So he just says to this guy, yeah, you're, you're willing to ab abandon that, but are you willing to give up everything to follow me? And then he goes on, and another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. In other words, I need to be more important than anything in your life, more important than your career, more important than any family member. I am number one. And Matthew's laid this out. And when it comes to Matthew, Jesus walks up and says, follow me. And immediately Matthew followed Jesus. You know, he, he's laid that out. And so Matthew um, is just reminding us that the call to follow Christ is a, a call to total commitment. You know, this is something that uh, we see in some of the comments later in the Gospels. As you look at, um, um, Peter says this in Mark chapter 10, verse 28. And in this situation, um, there's a rich, rich young ruler who's been there. And uh, he's not willing to follow Jesus because Jesus says, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And Peter makes a statement to Jesus. He says, 
Um, and Peter began to say to him, we have left everything and followed you. Um, Peter made a sacrifice of everything to follow Christ. Um, and when Jesus later, when the crowds have dispersed, and Jesus looks at his disciples and he says to them, are you going to also abandon me and disappear? Um, Simon Peter answers and says this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's one of the things that we see in the call to discipleship. We sacrifice everything to follow Christ because with Jesus comes eternal life. Currently, we have eternal death. We have brokenness. We have foolishness. The best that the world has to offer is empty. With Christ, we receive everything. So it's total commitment, but the reality is we gain so much more than we lose. You know, following Christ is also a commitment to be like Jesus, to follow Jesus, to follow his example, to obey his instructions. Now, we go from worshiping ourselves to worshiping Jesus. That's following Jesus. Uh, if you look at um, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus sets us an example. And the goal of discipleship is to be like Jesus. This is what it says in Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As we think about Memorial Day and we think about the huge sacrifices, the incredible love that people have had for our country. And it's not just love for a country. When people go off to war, when people sacrifice their life, when, when a person's willing to give up their life, it's not for like ground. It's for the people that enjoy that country. It's, it's for their family. It's for what that country stands for. And people have laid down their life for others. Greater love has no one than this, than that he would lay down his life for his friends. And, and that's true on a human level, but how much more important on a spiritual level? You know, fighting and giving up your life for the country, hey, that's valuable. But, but it does not compare for the value of eternity. And, and to give your life for the gospel, to devote your life to the gospel, to devote your life to following Jesus and being like Jesus, there's nothing of greater value than that. John 13, 14, after Jesus washes the disciples' feet, he says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash others' feet. You know, it's um, our commitment when we come to Christ is you are God, you know everything, I will worship you, and I will follow you. Uh, we love Jesus. That's part of discipleship. And Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. In Luke 6, 44, uh, he says to some people, why do you call me Lord and you don't obey me? To call yourself a Christian is a total commitment to knowing what Jesus says and to living out what Jesus says. Uh, that we could, get in, we could go a lot there in talking about the commitment and the diligence that we need to have to know what Jesus says, and to obey it.
There's a second thing that we see in this passage. Matthew just gets up and follows. And then we're going to see something else. The life of a disciple. We have found something so amazing, so valuable, so life-transforming. Like Peter, we say, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. There's nothing on earth that we wouldn't sacrifice to have the words of eternal life and to be a child of Jesus. And when we've received that treasure, the life of a disciple is then introducing others to Christ to take people and realize the most valuable thing that they could possibly have is a relationship with Christ. And so disciples are introducing other people. Look, look at this passage. I love it. Matthew 9, 10 through 13. Now, Matthew's a tax collector, and he's got a big house and lots of money. And what does he do? He throws a party for his friends and invites them to meet Jesus. Look at this. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house... Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came, and they were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. See, Jesus and his disciples, they weren't the elite. They weren't saying, saying we're important, we're the A-team, nobody else is allowed. Maybe if you're good enough, you can come in. No, Jesus and his disciples, they sat and they invited all the tax gatherers and the sinners. And it's amazing because Jesus didn't just preach to those tax gatherers and sinners. He invited them in. He sat down. He ate with them. Something that you see throughout Jesus's ministry, he loved people. He loved the people that no one else loved. And that's one of the great things about, you know, people who get saved and sometimes from a very sinful past, a sinful background. I think about my own life, wandering away from God and crossing paths with many other people that were wandering away from the Lord. And when God saved me, who did I talk to? It was my friends. I'll never forget a family in our church years and years ago. And the parents, the kid hated youth group, didn't want to come to youth group. He was a high school student. And his parents just said, I don't care whether you like it or not, you're going. A, a good decision by those parents. Uh, they said, you need this, you're going to go. They, they talked to me as a youth pastor and said, my son's struggling, really having a hard time in his attitude. He doesn't want to be there. Will you pray for him? Will you help him? Will you reach out to him? And then they told him, I don't care if you hate it and if you don't like anybody who's there, you're going. And one of the cool things is that this kid, he's like, oh my goodness, this is terrible. I don't want to go. And if I got to go endure that for an hour or two, I'm going to bring my friends. And so he actually shows up with five of his friends, not from a Christian background. I mean, this kid's growing up in a Christian home with guidance and training and teaching. And it's like, he's so tortured. He's like, please, this is a terrible place. I don't want to go, but please don't make me go by myself. And his friends are like, all right, well, it's probably not going to be very good, but hey, we care enough about you to show up. And they showed up for, for a, a long period of time. And you want to know something amazing? Uh, that kid, I never saw that, the child of that Christian individual. I never saw them come to know the Lord. I don't know what God has done in their life since. But I can tell you this, long after he faded out, he had friends that had come to know the Lord. Those kids who showed up with no Christian influence in their life came to know the Lord and to this day are walking faithfully with God. An amazing story about how God reaches out and, and, and through a wandering individual saves the people around them. 
hey, God reaches into our lives. You know, it's kind of a sad thing sometimes because people become Christians, and, and it's right and good for us to get away from the sinful behavior that, that characterizes our life. But what's really sad is when 10 years after a person's come to know the Lord, they don't have any more non-Christian friends. Um, we need to work hard as believers. We, sometimes as a new believer, you need to get away from sinful influences to get that sin out of your life. It's one of the things I did. I had to leave some things in my life. I had to leave some people in my life. But as believers, we need to rub shoulders and reach out to and invite the unbelievers in our life to know the Lord. That's one of the things that uh, Michelle and I have really loved about her jobs. Um, I work in a church, and so it's that, that's my job. Obviously, I'm a pastor. But one of the things that's awesome is that um, before we had kids, Michelle worked, and then she stayed home uh, for a long period of time, most of our kids growing up, and then started working again. But one of the things that we love is all the people that her job connected us with. Um, she has an assistant manager who is now a believer that was not a believer when, we, when she was working for him. She has a manager that I see these Facebook posts that he posts over and over. He came to know the Lord. There are so many people that God has reached through Michelle's secular job. And that's one of our main things. Hey, there's a lot of reasons that Michelle works, but one of the most important reasons that she works is that as a mission field. It is an opportunity to share the gospel with people. And so this is Matthew, and he brings his tax gatherers and his friends, and Jesus loves them. There's something else that we need to see here. And this is uh, quite an amazing thing, is the reaction of the religious leaders. Look at them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You know, it's amazing. These Pharisees, they're prideful. They're judgmental. They're uncompassionate, unloving. They're self-righteous they have completely missed the point of a relationship with God, the nature of Christianity. They were hard on people. They thought about how they were so convinced that they knew how things should be, and they didn't have the first clue. And Jesus, it's interesting, he's dismissive to the Pharisees. You know, he's loving these sinners, he's talking to these people who are struggling, and to the Pharisees, he just says, you know what, go, go off somewhere else. I'm not going to waste my time with you. You go learn what it means that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's a heart mercy. When, when a sinner has received God's forgiveness, they're merciful to others. You know, and that's a sad thing that can happen in the church. One of the things that Satan wants, he wants prideful people that are hard on others. They have standards. You must perform. But Jesus is calling people who recognize that they are tremendous sinners, that they've received God's mercy. And those people who will show the same mercy to others that has been shown to them. It's amazing in the body of Christ, sometimes the people who have actually received the most mercy are the most hard on others. That is not what God intends. 
And so he says, I want mercy, not sacrifice. I want your religious behavior. I want your heart. It's not the righteous who need a physician or who need a savior. It's the sinners. And you want to know something? There are no righteous people. There are only sinners. But when you think you're righteous, you don't realize you need a savior. And it's interesting. Jesus is just kind of dismissive. He's like, you know what? Go figure this out. But those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, verse 13, go and learn what this means. You know, um, Satan wants to control us and trap us and, and twist our thinking. We need to keep in mind how merciful Jesus has been, and we need to be very merciful to others. The third thing that we're going to see is that the life of a disciple it really flows out of the heart. And there are some things that are happening here. We'll, we'll go quickly on these illustrations. But here we're going to have another scene where Jesus is going to interact with the disciples of John. And I think there's some interesting things happening there. And it just says, When the disciples of John, this is John the Baptist, came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now think about these groups. The disciples of the Pharisees, Jesus said that the Pharisees um, were going to go to hell and that their disciples were going to go to hell. In fact, he called them sons of hell, um, the disciples of, of the Pharisees. And John the Baptist, we know, is a faithful man pointing people to Christ. And it's interesting because in external behavior, this point is about the heart, but in external behavior, you have the disciples of John the Baptist and you have the Pharisees that are actually, they're, they're both fasting. They're both doing the same things. One's a son of hell, and one's a faithful follower of, of God, being trained by John the Baptist himself. And, and, and here we have a window that external behavior is important, but external behavior is actually not the end. It is the result of a right heart. Here's the thing that's interesting is the disciples of John had a heart for the Lord and the disciples of Jesus also had a heart for the Lord. And so the two people with a right heart heading in the right direction are doing something different. You know, I think about, um, hey, I don't want to get too much into the COVID-19, but today, uh, this morning, there are Christian, faithful, believing Christian churches that are gathering in person. And then there are also other religions, um, false religions, religions ultimately that are following Satan, and they're also meeting today. And then you'll have other faithful believing churches that are not gathering today. And I just think that we need to be very careful when it comes to how we judge and think about things. It's not the behavior that's a measurement, it's the heart. It's why we do what we do. And then there's another important, so that, that's just one thing about, um, about uh, external religion and legalism. But Jesus, he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna answer John's disciples. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. When it comes to fasting, fasting is, a, is not something you do during a celebration. You don't go to a wedding and fast. If you invite me to your half house for dinner, I hope I'm not fasting. If I was fasting, I would break my fast so I could eat dinner with you. 
you don't fast in a celebration. Fasting is a, is a reserved time of intense prayer and focus. And Jesus is just saying, uh, he doesn't tell John's disciples that they shouldn't be fasting, but he just says, my disciples are in a different situation. They're in a different circumstance. You are living under the Old Testament law. My disciples are learning how to live under the new covenant. And they weren't under the new covenant yet, but Jesus was teaching them that. Uh, Jesus is already earlier in Matthew said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The, the purpose and the motivation for what was happening with John's disciples was different from what was happening with Jesus' disciples. That's why he said, my disciples aren't going to fast now. They will when I leave, but they don't fast now while I'm here. And then this whole idea of this new thing that Jesus was bringing, verse 16, Jesus gives an illustration. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. And he goes on again, and he says, for the patch tears away from the garment, and the tears were made worse. You know, if you get some jeans that have shrunk in the washer, and then you take some jeans, you, you, you put a patch on it after they've already shrunk, and then that patch shrinks, I mean, obviously you need the old with the old and the new with the new. And, and the, the next illustration he gives has the same point, neither is new wine put into old wineskins because the wineskins will burst and the wine is spilled out and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are preserved. You know, this is a, discu a discussion of the Old Testament. You know, one of the things that, that uh, you know about me um, is that I believe the entire Bible is of utmost importance for a Christian. You need to read it from Genesis to Revelation. You don't just need the New Testament, you need the Old Testament. But it's really important, and what Jesus is saying here is it's very important that you understand the difference from living in the New Testament versus the Old Covenant. We don't make sacrifices. We read the Old Testament and we, we learn about the law, but we don't read the Old Testament and try to obey it. We don't take things out of context. Um, the Old Testament law says you can't wear clothing of mixed fabric. It's not a sin for a Christian to wear cotton and polyester shirt. If you were an Old Testament Jew, that would be wrong. Uh, for an Old Testament Jew, they couldn't eat pork. Believers, we eat pork. So when we read the Old Testament, we don't take things that don't apply to us and then lay them over ourselves or start trying to obey those things or to misunderstand those things. But we need the whole Old and New Testament, but it needs to be understood correctly, and we are living under the New Testament law. And so that's one of the things that you see is that for Jesus, there's not a focus on external behavior there's a focus on a right heart, the right thing for the right situation. Let's consider point four. The next thing that we're going to see here is that the life of a disciple flows from a spiritual worldview. Um, Jesus is going to continue to heal and to cast out demons, and those all testify to, to who he is. But he's called his disciples. He's addressing the hard issues in his disciples. And we're going to see the last part of um, this chapter. Jesus has his disciples and he's been doing ministry and he's compassionate and he's caring about people. 
and he tells his disciples to pray. Look at verse 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. You know, it's interesting. Um, Jesus sees the crowds. Um, hey, Jesus and his disciples, when Jesus called his disciples, you want to know what he didn't do? He, he didn't say, hey, look, let's go off onto a mountain and live all by ourselves where we're not around anyone. Let's get away from these poisonous Pharisees and their terrible teaching. Jesus took his disciples and he plopped them right down in the middle of the people and he taught them how to live and he taught them how to think about what they saw and how to think about the people that they saw. And you'll notice that Jesus's heart was full of compassion and he taught his disciples to have compassion. Uh, he was engaged with the crowds. He saw, spirit, he saw them through spiritual eyes. He saw that they were harassed and helpless. Jesus didn't look at the Pharisees and say, oh, wow, they've got it, go they got it going on, man. They're rich. Look at all the people following them. This is amazing. He didn't look at the crowds of people and judge them by their external circumstances. He saw them spiritually, that they were in need, and he had compassion for them. And his disciples were going to learn to see people the way Jesus saw them. You know, I was thinking about um, what the Bible tells us about Jesus. Hebrews 2.18, it says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus lived life. He relates to us. He understands us. You know, Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament, it said what Jesus would be like. And it says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. And we esteemed, we esteemed him not. You know, it's interesting that um, Jesus doesn't see prob people's problems. He doesn't judge them. He doesn't hate them. And he's not avoiding them. He wants to help them. They're like sheep without a shepherd, and I want to help. You know, the word for compassion here is only used in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it's talking about your inward parts, being moved with compassion, feeling sympathy. It's this deep internal feeling for a person where your heart just goes out to them and you say, man, these people need help. Um, he's looking at them with spiritual eyes. He sees what their genuine needs are. He didn't say to that rich man, oh, you got lots of houses and lots of property and you're very rich, so you're good. He says to him, no, what you need to do is sell everything you have on earth and you need to follow me. It's what you really need. See, the heart of discipleship and seeing the world for what it is, if you're materialistic, if what drives you and motivates you are your material things, you will not see life for what it is. You'll see other people who are rich and who have everything, and, and you'll just think, man, that's, you guys are better off than I am. And you won't understand their need for the gospel. 
That's one of the things that we do as disciples is we need to see life for what it is or we won't be able to reach out to people and we won't be able to train people to reach out. You know, we need to be like Christ. I think it's interesting that Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. That's positive. The harvest is good. He saw people's problems, but he was like, that is a great opportunity, an opportunity for change. Pray that God would send people out into his, his harvest to care for and to help these people that are hurting. You know, that is the opposite of what Satan wants. Satan wants a church that is prideful, judgmental, angry, hard on people, harsh with people, hard on others, judgmental when somebody walks in the door and, and they're not dressed right or they're not behaving right or they show up and they have a whole life full of sin. Satan wants a church that's judgmental and prideful and harsh. Jesus wants a church that loves. And, and I'm just going to say this too. You can't treat people outside the church with the love that God wants you to treat them with when you can't even treat the people in the church with the love that they need to be treated with. How often in the body of Christ are we just willing to discard people and throw them out and just say, I don't like you and I'm mad at you and you didn't do what I wanted you to do and you should be gone. And we treat people like that in the church. Where is the soft heart and the compassion that Jesus taught his disciples to have. It's not that you don't ever take a hard stand or, or say things that people may not like to hear, but we don't just discard people. We love them and we have a desire to meet their needs and to help them do better. You know, I think this is interesting. He, he says to his disciples, verse 38, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. Now think about what that does. When you pray, your prayer is an expression of what you think. When you're praying earnestly for something, that means you gotta see it right. You're gonna develop a heart for it. You're gonna understand the needs and then you're gonna go do something about it. No wonder the disciples gave their lives to see people come to know Christ because they were praying for that earnestly. You know, I was thinking about uh, Jessica. And I'm going to close with this story. But when Jessica was a kid and she went to school, there was, we, we were, um, the church that I was at had a huge homeschool movement. Um, we had a, at one point, there was a junior high ministry with, um, when I first started, this was when I was 20. And we had a junior high ministry and it, it grew to, to the place that it had about 40 kids in it. And of those 40 kids, 30 of them were homeschooled. I had never heard of homeschool. And I'm like, where do you guys go to school? And they're telling me they're homeschooled. And I'm like, what is that? And as we were kind of thinking this through, and by the way, Michelle and I did homeschool our kids for a couple years. There's a place for homeschool. There's a place for public school. Like, this is not about that. But we decided that I, we want our kids to learn how to function in the world, to learn how to be a Christian. And so one of the things, Jessica was a new, a new uh, kindergarten student, and I would take her to school every morning. And I was just talking to her about the mission field that the school was. And every morning we would pray on the way to school. She's five years old. She knew the gospel. And we were just talking to her and just, and she had prayed to receive Christ. And I was just saying, God's put you here as a missionary. Let's pray that people in your class, people in your school will come to know the Lord. And uh, so we used to pray every day. We would pray that God would give her opportunities. And I would drop her off at school. Well, one day it's camp. And I'm, I'm off somewhere at some camp, some pastor's conference or whatever. 
and Michelle gets a call from the teacher. And there was a little boy in Jessica's class that had no eyes. He had some kind of a disease, and actually his eyes had to be removed. And so there's this five-year-old student with, in her class with no eyes. And so she goes up to him, and she just says to him, hey, you know, if, if you pray, maybe God will give you back your eyes. And I remember the teacher overheard that, and she was very upset. And she pulls Jessica to the side, and she just says, um, Jessica, you can't tell him that. What if he prays and God doesn't give him eyes? What then? So don't talk to him about that. And so Jesus, Jessica just kind of thought about that. And so she went to him and she said, you know, maybe you won't have eyes in this life. But if you become a Christian, one day when you die and go to heaven, you'll be able to see. And uh, the teacher overheard that and got really mad and called Michelle. Your daughter's talking to other kids. And uh, when I came home from that trip, Michelle calls me and she's like, yeah, you're going to sit and pray with Jessica to share the gospel at school, but I'm the one who has to answer the phone when she's getting in trouble at school. And um, you know what we had? It was an interesting thing for us as our kids were going through school to teach them to honor and respect authority, to, to talk that through with her about this kid and telling him to pray for new eyes and what it means to share the gospel, but to be able to go to that teacher and say, no, actually... God can allow him to see. And what Jessica said about him being in heaven and being whole, whole, no, that is true. And teaching Jessica to honor her teachers, but also nobody tells you whether or not you can share the gospel. And that was just a, a learning experience. And to be able to go to the teacher and say, no, we're Christians. And yes, we will tell people about Christ. And yes, we also really appreciate you coaching and helping Jessica and, and, we're, and just working those things through. But one of the things I think is interesting is that praying that she would have opportunities to share the gospel as a five-year-old kid resulted in her sharing the gospel. The things that we pray passionately for work their way out in our life. And that's what Jesus was doing. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would help us to follow you correctly, that we would see life correctly, that we would pray correctly, and Lord, that that would result in us living correctly. I ask your help in all these things in your name. Amen.